Hello and welcome to the Talking Indonesia podcast. I'm Dave McRae from the University of Melbourne's Asia Institute and today, two years after President Jokowi's inauguration, I'm joined by Dr. Jose Rizal Dumuri to look back over the Jokowi government's track record on the economy. Jose is head of the economics department at the Jakarta-based think tank, the Center for Strategic and International Studies, or CSIS. Jose, thanks for joining us today. No problem. Thank you very much, Dave. Now, could I start by asking you, uh, Jokowi's government's been in power for two years now. What priorities have emerged for the government in the economic sphere over those two years and how are they going in achieving those priorities? Right. Uh, there are two priorities related to economic developments. The first one is to enhance productivity and competitiveness. And the government described it in, uh, in a plan to build infrastructures, more infrastructure, including roads and, and ports. And the second one is on economic independency, which they define as the food sovereignty, energy sovereignty, and also a finance sovereignty, including also to enhance people economy. Okay, and how is it going on each of those priorities? The infrastructures plan or the uh, competitiveness plans uh, has been going on quite well, although uh, a lot still needs to do. But uh, at least the direction is already on the way. But for the second one, the independency, we still have a lot of problems. Not only the, uh, the, the problems are issue in the implementations, but also whether the uh, economic independency would be a good target or not. Yeah. Because when we're talking about the current situation, we're not talking about economic independency. It's actually, what we have today is economic interdependency at global level. So whether this one is still a good target or not, maybe need to be uh, discussed even further. And that's what makes uh, most of the uh, targets in this yeah. issue perhaps uh, still far from the realizations. Like, for example, to have the food sovereignty. Mm. They're talking about food sovereignty, not food mm. security. It's mm. totally different concept. It means that food has to be produced inside Indonesia, which yeah. is basically, it, it's not really economically viable and it's mm. not economically desirable as well. Also about many uh, many other sovereignty. Mm. And as, uh, as we can uh, expect, mm. if the concept itself is still questionable, then mm. you cannot expect the implementations would be, uh, would be effective. Right? So basically, the two main priorities would mm. be increasing productivity where infrastructure development has been one of the key steps yeah. the government's taken and this idea of economic independence uh, mm. where things like food self-sufficiency are some of the key policies yeah. uh, and you're saying that's somewhat out of step with current economic thinking. Where do you think these two priorities came from? Does this reflect Jokowi's own personal economic thinking or is it from sort of his political party or, or somewhere else? Some of them perhaps reflects what he's thinking and also his party belief. Mm. Like, for example, the infrastructure development, for example, or increasing competitiveness. I, I think it comes from uh, Jokowi himself and also per, perhaps uh, from his teams because as an entrepreneur, as a businessman, he knew exactly what's the problems Indonesian business face at the moment. It's, it's about infrastructure, it's about competitiveness and also productivity. And it's quite uh, understandable that he come up with this kind of idea to develop and to enhance productivity. But for the independency, 
I don't think he's the ones who has this kind of thinking or visions because in many uh, occasion President Jokowi also mentions about the importance of Indonesia becoming an uh, integral part of the global economy. Uh, but of course, in other occasion, he comes back to his Nawachita. The Nawachita being Jokowi's nine-point campaign agenda. And then mm. try to promote the independency, economic independency. So he, and even until now, he kept sending mixed signal. Mm. Although in terms of uh, policy, he seems to lean toward the integrations rather than uh, independence. So if it doesn't come from Jokowi personally, where does this focus on economic uh, independence come I from? I think it comes from the ideology of the party because the supporting parties, especially the PDIP, uh, is quite well known to be a nationalist party, which mm. is in in some sense, it's, it's a good thing, mm. but in many other areas, especially in the uh, economic thinking, they tend to be overly nationalistic and I think the government or, or uh, even the president himself need to entertain a little bit on this basic ideology. I mean, can we tie it? Because it's interesting yeah. that you mentioned PDIP, Megawati Sukarno Putri's party yeah. and Jokowi's key supporter uh, as the source of economic nationalism because mm. I guess if we, or, or this idea of economic independency, mm. Because if we go back to the previous government under Susilo yeah. Bambang Yudhoyono, uh, I think economists have highlighted there were a number of policies in his second term, right. beef self-sufficiency, right, right. ban on mineral mm. exports, mm. those sort of things mm. That, mm. that they would also see as oriented towards economic independence. Yeah. So is this something that there's been more emphasis on under Jokowi or is it more a continuation of longer term trends? Uh, even if we go even back even mm. further to mm. Megawati's uh, era, Although the, the party always voiced this kind of uh, nationalisms, economic nationalisms, but in reality, Megawati's uh, government didn't really uh, go into that way. The government even took more liberal way or a more open way of economy, including privatization, including uh, liberalization as well. While in the SBY era, this kind of nationalism, economic nationalism, perhaps was not really in the discussion, into uh, coming into the discussion. But in reality, some policy uh, were in place uh, to entertain this kind of idea. In the Jokowi era here, we still have mixed signal, but in reality, I think the government also try to, first, they, they, they are also realize that Indonesia needs to be integrated to global economy. Mm. And uh, they also tend to do that. They also tend to uh, pursue more open economic policy, such as, for example, the, uh, Indonesia has an neg uh, investment negative list. And uh, President Jokowi introduced the new uh, investment negative list earlier this uh, year. These are, sorry, uh, the list of sectors that foreign that parties can't invest in. Can invest or at least have some kind of requirement, such as joint venture or partnership oh, okay. with uh, domestic uh, yeah. industries, especially from for the uh, small medium enterprises. And this uh, new list is more progressive more open than the previous one which was introduced in the uh, Yudhoyono era. 
So we can see that although the ideology is still there uh, and the president also need to entertain this kind of ideology by uh, mentioning several times about independency yeah. Yeah. and uh, and perhaps also still in implementing it in the in terms of agriculture and food but in other sectors and in generals the uh, we can see that the policy is more toward liberalization so it sounds like if you've had across multiple governments these kind of mixed signals you said of a rhetoric of economic independence uh, economic nationalism but mm. in fact under Megawati's government from what 2001 to 2004 mm. Mm. quite liberal policies is this need to pay homage to economic independence the main political constraint that the Jokowi government faces or, or are there other limits on what he can do in the economic sphere because of politics I think perhaps it already becomes the a burden to the government mm. especially mm. when we're talking about the food security or food production here perhaps you know that the, the price of food has been increasing a lot uh, mm. during the last two years uh, and one of the uh, factor behind it is because the the ban on, on import food imports and it would create even greater burdens to the governments later on when they are trying to invite more investments to Indonesia because at the moment they realize that the investment is one of the source for economic growth and economic development but in order to do that they have to invite more foreign investment but on the other hand some economic sectors are still deemed to be sensitive or some of the area still considered to have a greater public interest that yeah. requires a state owned enterprise to monopolize the sectors okay mm. uh, what would be some examples of those sectors where state owned enterprises are, are monopolizing Uh, in the electricity sector for mm. example uh, it is still monopolized by the by the uh, state owned enterprise although the foreign investors can come in here to build the power plant mm. uh, they don't have any uh, other choice than selling the product mm. to the uh, state owned enterprise mm. and it means that the success of uh, jokowi's plan to increase electricity power uh, by having new 35000 megawatt depends on PLN the state mm. on enterprise yeah. if they want to support this mm. plan this program then uh, the the program uh, would be okay but the thing is the PLN uh, doesn't want to take the burdens of course because mm. uh, they are basically a monopoly to to buy the power from yeah. private sectors they ha they have to make it less costly for them it means they have to be careful also to initiate the program and this kind of uh, attitude uh, has already become a burden mm. for Jokowi's programs to increase electricity power mm. Mm. okay i mean this is an interesting point yeah. because There's been quite a bit of focus on Jokowi relying on state-owned enterprises right. uh, in particularly the infrastructure sector because it gives his government more control uh, allows him to get projects mm. started more quickly. Now, mm. in a previous podcast with Professor Jamie Davidson from mm. the National University of Singapore, he yeah. raised the caution that it's not certain that Jokowi has as much control over state-owned enterprises as he might imagine. How do you see the I guess the situation with state-owned enterprises are they sort of something that 
a president in Indonesia like Jokowi can just dictate terms to or can they resist government policy? I agree with Professor Jamidavis that the control perhaps is a little bit elusive. As you know that the state-owned enterprise in Indonesia uh, has been a cash cow for political parties, not only the, the one in power, but also even the, the oppositions uh, uh, can get the, the rent-seeking activities from the state-owned enterprise. And it means that the SOE tend to become uh, more as a, a lobbyist rather than an implementer. They, they, their first priority is to lobby the government rather than to do their jobs uh, and uh, make uh, having them to become the the one that leads uh, infrastructure development perhaps not really good options first uh, they have a uh, limited capacity in terms of the uh, financing the second also they they have a limited capacity in terms of technology and the, uh, the third one as i mentioned they tend to uh, put priority in uh, in having good relationship with political parties or the or governments uh, and then put their jobs uh, into the second or the third priorities that means they perhaps uh, would also entertain rent-seeking activities like the, the practice is, is, is quite diverse one example of the practice is to try to use the contractors or companies uh, subcontractors or companies from the political parties or from uh, politicians Yeah. So the politicians set up uh, their their own contractors, and then mm. these contractors uh, would become the partner or mm. would become subcontractors for certain project from the SOEs. Okay. This kind of practice uh, is quite widespread, uh, mm. and it makes uh, the cost of uh, development can also uh, go higher. I mean, then does Jokowi's emphasis on SOEs for infrastructure reflect the influence of rent-seeking political business? Uh, figures on his government or is something else at play? I don't think Jokowi himself would use the SOEs to do this kind of rent-seeking activities. But perhaps the lower levels of government officials uh, still can do that. And then uh, there are also other motives. You also mentioned uh, on how the process perhaps would be easier if the government used state on enterprise rather than having the private sectors mm. because private sectors would demand guarantee mm. uh, would demand financial feasibility and also perhaps uh, even financial support from mm. the government mm. but the SOE perhaps would not ask for that but they also demand other kind of requirements such as if we look at the budget for the mm. last two years mm. we can find in the budget a post to increase the capital placement Mm. government capital mm. placement and it's quite substantial uh, in terms of the money disbursed from the government to state on enterprise um can i take you back now to this uh, idea of mixed signals in jokowi in the jokowi mm. government's economic mm. policy mm. and i think one of the interesting features of the economic sphere over the past two years has been in the two cabinet reshuffles that we've seen right. Essentially, all the key economic posts have changed, and yeah. some of them have changed twice, like the trade minister and the mm, head of the National mm, Development mm, Planning mm, Agency. Mm, mm. Um, why do you think there have been so many changes in among his economic ministry, mm. and uh, what effect has that had on economic policy making? I think there are many factors behind it. One of them, for sure, is political pressure or political considerations, like the first Ministry of Planning or the first Minister of Trade 
I don't think they were capable persons or competent persons to be uh, in that positions, but rather they were there to entertain certain political considerations. That's the first one, political considerations, uh, including also for the supporting parties uh, and the allies. The uh, second one, perhaps also because Jokowi has different agenda or different vision than the ministers. Yeah, some of them uh, are quite clear on that. Mm. That means the, the president needs to maintain coherence in the cabinet. That's yeah. why he perceives the needs to replace the, per, uh, the persons. The third one, perhaps also coming from disagreements between cabinet ministers. Uh, some of them are still in the, uh, in the side to have more independent economy, while others perhaps more toward the uh, liberalization mm. or openness. Then those two often come into public and mm. then uh, give a lot uh, many statements that mm. contradict to each other. Right. And Jokowi doesn't really like the contradictions, especially those brought to the public uh, mm. attention. Uh, and he has to choose one of them or mm. just to replace two or uh, any everybody who is involved in the disagreement. Can I start with the idea of political interests influencing the composition of the cabinet? Can we see a trend over time there? I mean, across these two cabinet reshuffles, have political influence on the makeup of the economic ministry increased or decreased? I mean, we had... Sudir Man said one of the yeah. the former energy minister giving a long mm. interview to the mm. weekly news mm. magazine Tempo mm. here mm. where basically he said he mm. felt there had been a point during yeah. Jokowi's government where reform yeah. had faded yeah. Yeah. Uh, and he'd lost access yeah. to the president. Yeah. Does that reflect that political influences mm. got worse or got mm. more pronounced? I'm not a political scientist and I don't really follow the political process closely, but in some positions it becomes more politically oriented. Perhaps I should mention one example. Uh, this is the first time in, I think, uh, Indonesian history after the uh, New Order era, uh, during this, even during the Suharto era, uh, that we have the Minister of Trade from uh, political party, from Nasdem. Nasdem, the National Democratic Party, is the party of businessman Surya Palo, a Jokowi backup. This is just one example. So you can also uh, look at other examples on how the portions of representatives from political parties are increasing in the mm. cabinet. And what about, I mean, this issue of trade liberalization versus protectionism? And I guess Thomas Lembong, the mm. trade minister who was appointed mm. in the first reshuffle and replaced in the second yeah. Uh, was seen as, I guess, pro-liberalisation. Yeah. <laughs> has an overall trend emerged there? Do yeah. we now have a cabinet that's uh, less pro-liberalisation or more pro-liberalisation, or is it still a mix? I think that is one of the examples for, for the disagreement mm. between certain cabinet members. You mentioned about Tom Lembong as Minister of a trade which was quite liberal, uh, and then Jokowi also had the Minister of Agriculture, uh, which tried to uh, promote food sovereignty mm. uh, by banning import. Uh, so we can see the disagreements quite quite obvious last time before the president did the second reshuffle. What about now? Uh, who would you see as the 
key proponents of protectionism or of liberalization within the cabinet? I think now it becomes more harmonized. Mm. Yeah. So uh, in certain sectors, for example, like the uh, Ministry of Trade introduced more open policy, especially for the food food sectors, even for the food sector, mm. uh, like like the governments announced the uh, the lift uh, to change the import bans into more uh, more liberal regimes mm. for beef import. So you're saying overall, there's now a more more liberalization focused approach to the economy? Maybe not, but at least the direction is to go for more open economy, but under certain limit to follow certain corridor. Could I take you now to tax collection? I mean, an issue economists have long highlighted as a weak point for Indonesia. Um, both sides promised to raise the tax ratio in the presidential campaign. In Jokowi's case, I think from 12% to 16% of GDP or something like that figure. What progress has Jokowi's government made over the first two years on improving tax collection? I don't think there is any progress mm. at all in improving the tax collections. The tax collection ratio in Indonesia is, I think, one of the lowest in the regions, only around 11 point something percent of the GDP. And the, the government now introduced tax amnesty, but the tax amnesty is a, bit, a little bit ambiguous. Whether the objective is to improve the tax collection or just to fill the gap, the current gap of mm. tax revenue. Yeah. And it seems that the, the government's motivations behind the tax amnesty, the current tax amnesty, is the second one. Just to make just, revenue shortfalls. Yeah, year. just to make the revenue shortfall to fill the deficit. And because it doesn't really tell us much about what kind of uh, reforms on tax collections, yeah. what kind of reforms that the government or the tax office would pursue uh, after the tax amnesty uh, finished and how they use the information gathered during tax amnesty programs to improve the tax collections. We don't have that kind of information so far. Right. I don't know whether they, they do have the detailed plan on that. We still need to look at it. Okay. Because isn't the idea of this tax amnesty that a lot of assets that were previously hidden from the Indonesian right. state are declared and people then need to pay tax on an ongoing basis right. Uh, right. on them and that people will register as taxpayers? Yeah. Have, have we not seen that happen? Yeah, not? that's that's the ideal one. Mm. Tax amnesty gathered the information for newer mm. new tax basis. Mm. But uh, most of the one who use the tax amnesty are those taxpayers who already pay the taxes previously, but mm. they just want to uh, revise their previous tax payment, uh, which is okay. Uh, mm. It also uh, has a potential to improve mm. the tax collection in the mm. future, but that's not enough. That's mm. not sufficient. This kind of information needs to be processed mm. and needs to be used in an effective way in order to improve tax collections. And then the new taxpayers haven't really been touched by the tax mm. amnesty program. Not many new taxpayers registered or used the tax amnesty. Now, on that tax amnesty, it was being criticised for a long time that sort of it wasn't really attracting many people to participate, that the amount of assets declared and revenue collected was very small. And then all of a sudden, we seem to see a rush of uh, a lot of people 
participating in the in the tax amnesty what changed why why did it suddenly become more popular i think that's because the the ultra rich uh, sees that as a chance for them to give a forgiven uh, mm. to give uh, tax amnesty and this is uh, this is good for them uh, and also good for the economy as well mm. but still it comes from very few uh, mm. peoples and yeah. it doesn't really increase the tax base. I mean, do you think there was behind the scenes pressure on some of those people? or Maybe not pressures, but mm. rather like a kind of a moral suasion perhaps mm. uh, or uh, suggestions and perhaps a little bit threat or mm. maybe to individuals, especially those who have who has uh, big assets. We've seen criticism of the tax amnesty as unfair. Could you talk us through that and you know the the fairness considerations in the in the way the tax amnesty functions? I don't think it's uh, totally unfair. It's quite fair. Uh, mm. I mean, if the government has uh, wants to increase or to improve the tax collection, they have to revise. They have to improve also the tax informations. That's supposed to be the first objective the priority motivation for tax amnesty to improve tax informations and in order to do that the government needs to uh, give something in returns which mm. is the tax amnesty mm. the amnesty itself so i think it's quite fair for me what i deem to be unfair is that this amnesty is supposed to be the right for every taxpayers but many taxpayers especially the lower and middle income taxpayers they cannot use the tax amnesty. They cannot use this facility just because they cannot uh, they cannot pay for the charge, the retributions. Okay, you have to yeah. pay your tax arrears in, yes, one, in like, one go. Not really, but there is a charge for that. Okay, the surcharge charge okay. for that. Okay. Like 2% of your declared asset mm. or 3% okay. of declared asset. And for the lower and middle taxpayers, the 2 or 3% of their assets are quite mm. big, quite significant. Too much for them to pay. Too much for them to pay. So only few of those groups that can take opportunity to use the tax amnesty. Another thing that I guess we've seen commented on a lot over the first two years of Jokowi's government has been mm. a perceived new closeness or emphasis on ties with China. Yeah. Has that changed the involvement of the Chinese government, Chinese companies in the Indonesian economy? When we're talking about economic relationship, we have to uh, differentiate the relationship into three areas. The first one is trade area. In that regard, Indonesia and China also already has quite intensive trade relations. If I'm not mistaken, China is the biggest trade partner for Indonesia. And it has been going on for the last 15 years. The second one on business investment. The business investment actually remained small, especially when we're talking about Chinese investors who come to Indonesia. It's only less than 1% of the whole foreign investment. Uh, in Indonesia. So still insignificant actually. And I think the government of Indonesia wants to improve the situation and then would like to attract more uh, Chinese companies to come to Indonesia. And because most of the problems, most of the issues are basically related to Indonesia's investment in environment in general. So uh, it is also in line with the uh, initiative that have been done by the Jokowi's government. Although in that regard, the, the government of Indonesia also seems to be promoting Indonesia to the Chinese business as their investment destinations. Uh, and the third one is the government 
mostly on the infrastructure or development financing. It's mm. more like a government-to-government -government, uh, relations, although in the implementation, the business would also join in. And uh, in this regard, actually, we have seen a lot of improvement and also a lot of cooperations between Indonesia and China, but not only from, the, from Jokowi's era. Also, uh, in the previous uh, Yudhoyono era, we, we have seen that one of the longest bridges in Indonesia, the Suramadu Bridge between Surabaya and Madura, was built by the Chinese money, Chinese uh, bank, and also Chinese contractors, Chinese yeah. companies, financed by the, uh, by the government uh, yeah. of China as well. Uh, so this is just a continuation, although uh, Jokowi's government perhaps uh, see the more opportunity because uh, infrastructure development is still uh, under the priority and Chinese government, Chinese bank also have a means to finance to, uh, of those development. I mean, in Australia, we've had sort of a very pronounced public debate over Chinese investment mm. in infrastructure. Right. And in fact, the federal government in Australia blocked Chinese investment in power grid. Yeah. The Chinese investment in Darwin's port uh, was also very hotly debated sort of among, I guess, mm. security mm. specialists mm. In, in Australia with some mm. seeing mm. little security risk mm. and others seeing that that too should have been blocked. Does that sort of debate happen in Indonesia over Chinese investment in infrastructure or is it not seen to carry possible security or strategic risk? Uh, we have this kind of debate even before in the previous era. I mentioned about the Suramadu Bridge, mm. but there were also several other projects that Indonesian government and uh, Chinese government tried to carry out. And they were not really successful, not as successful as Suramadu Bridge project. Uh, for example, uh, on the power plant, the plan was to build 10,000 megawatt, additional 10,000 megawatts by 2010 during Yudhoyono era. And they were unsuccessful because of the technical problems, because of the uh, environmental problems. So we had bad experience as well with the Chinese counterpart, especially in the infrastructure development. And this kind of experience also uh, get into the debate uh, whether it is quite appropriate to offer Chinese counterpart to come to perform uh, infrastructure development in Indonesia. It's because of the uh, quality. Mm. It's also because of the, the way they finance it. There is also problems in the perhaps related to environment. Mm. And in Indonesian case, in many cases, there are also reports on uh, labor issues where Chinese contractors tend to bring their own workers from mm. China for the constructions. Mm. Okay, so it's quite a different set of issues than kind of quality, labor force, environmental considerations rather than any concerns over security from Chinese investment in infrastructure. I don't think security is one of the main factors in the mm. debate. Finally, Jokowi now has three years left in his yeah. first term. Is it a matter of his government continuing on with the policy settings he already has in place for the economy? Or are there sort of certain big changes that you would recommend the government still makes? In my opinion, they have to pay more attention on how to improve investment climate because that's the only elements of economic development that can create multiplier effect and that can be expected to be the main source of growth. 
because if we depends on the government expenditure then the government revenue still has a lot of problems yeah. and in order to do that i think uh, the government has to be has to realize that the only way their integrations toward the ec- uh, global economy is the necessary conditions mm. uh, in order to uh, improve the investment climate. Uh, you say there's a lot more I could ask you, but we're well and truly out of time. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us on Talking Indonesia yeah. today. Thank you very much to have me here, yeah. uh, Dave. That was Dr. Jose Rizal Demuri, Head of the Economics Department at the Centre for Strategic and International Studies in Jakarta. Tune in again on 3 November, where my colleague Kun Satyawan returns with the next instalment of Talkie Indonesia. In the meantime, explore the entire Talkie Indonesia archive at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog, via iTunes, or your favourite podcasting app. You might like to check out also the Asia Institute's new podcast, Ear to Asia, published in alternate weeks to Talkie Indonesia. Until next time, this has been the Talkie Indonesia podcast. Bye for now.